0: Fatima in the Book of the Apocalypse by David Rodriguez The Conference from Fatima, by the Time is Now Given in Charlotte, North Carolina on February 12, 2023 When asked about the Third Secret, Sister Lucia responded that we should read St. John's Apocalypse as it was all there, especially chapters 8 through 13. Let us then consider those chapters through the lens of Fatima. This conference is a continuation of the podcast titled, Catholic Reading of Prophecy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Direct, we beseech thee, O Lord. All our actions by thy holy inspiration and carry them on by thy gracious assistance, so that every prayer and work of ours may begin always from thee and through thee be happily ended. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Lady Fatima, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So we'll pick up right where we left off. If anyone wants to follow along, I know a lot of you might have your, your phones. You can look up the Dewey Raims Bible, you can go to the book of the Apocalypse. I'll just be reading parts and commenting on them so you can hopefully see how the message of Fatima is in it. I'll start with this, what is perhaps the most important because I don't want to miss this if I run out of time. If we speak of our Blessed Mother and a great battle, everyone immediately turns to Apocalypse chapter 12. We often read from that book in the liturgy. So let's go to Apocalypse chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And being with child, she cried travailing in birth and was in pain to be delivered. This child, will of course, we'll hear in a minute, will be the one who rules all nations forever. So the child is obviously Christ our Lord. And therefore, this virgin is obviously our blessed mother. Now, that's not to preclude the fact that it can also represent the church, the mystical bride of Christ. Anytime you come up with an image of Mary, you also have an image of the church there. So it's both. People will say, well, it couldn't be our Blessed Mother because the woman was travailing in verse 2. And I remind them, well, she may not have travailed in Bethlehem, 0 AD, but on 33 AD at Calvary, there was certainly a lot of travailing. And as our Blessed Mother has brought each one of us into the church, she is travailing, or any of us that are lost. So there is still that. And that's, again, that more measured Catholic reading of Scripture, the sun is already present here, which connects us to Fatima because of the miracle of the sun. We see that this woman who is clothed with the sun, you have control over the things that you are clothed with. She will be in control of these great miracles that are happening in the stars and in the sun. She has a crown. She's obviously our queen. Verse 3, there was another sign in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head, seven diadems. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to be devoured, that when she should be delivered, he might devour her son. Obviously, the red dragon is Satan, is Lucifer, and his minions. It's interesting, one of the commentators said, well, perhaps the dragon has the color red, because that's also the color of the heirs of Russia. And of communism. And of atheism. So there's a connection there as well to the message of Fatima. We already see sort of the tools that Satan uses. Communism, errors of Russia. And when I say communism, I mostly mean atheism. The denial that man has a soul. The denial of eternity, that there is a heaven and a hell. Therefore, there need be no morality. That's what comes in this atheistic system. We'll read that there's a great battle then. The devil sweeps down a third of the stars from heaven. The church fathers will tell us that very often the stars are symbolic of prelates, of the church hierarchy. And so this could be understood both as at the very beginning of time, or I should say before time was created, and there was a great battle in the heavens. And Lucifer said, non serviam, I will not serve. And a third of the angels went and sided with him. And Saint Michael fought them, saying, Who is like unto God, defending God's holy name, the holy face of God again, going to battle as his banner against Satan, to cast Satan out of heaven down to hell. So that is certainly one of the understandings. But another understanding is that when he sweeps down a third of these stars, it's also sweeping down a third of the prelates, which can, of course, begin to show us the different types different times, a type of the times that the church begins to fall into heresy, like the Aryan heresy, certainly, but even now with the modernistic heresy. Again, Mr. Frowning was talking about Pope St. Pius X teaching against modernism in his encyclical, Pashendi, from 1907, and we heard how it's a synthesis of heresies, how it's in the lifeblood of the church trying to destroy the very church. That's this third of the stars falling down that the devil sweeps down. Then there's a great battle in the heavens. Michael and his angels fight with the dragon. The dragon fights with his angels. Some people who follow Fatima are not aware that the angel that appeared to the children in 1916, three times prior to Our Lady coming, preparing them for Our Lady coming, teaching them various prayers, was in fact St. Michael the Archangel. He calls himself the Garden Angel of Portugal. And when you look at Portugal's history, St. Michael is their Garden Angel calls himself an angel of peace, which makes sense, because he has to vanquish the evil one for there to be peace. So again, a very strong connection to Fatima here in this 12th chapter, because all the main characters, the lady, the red dragon, and Saint Michael, are all present very powerfully at the message of Fatima. No wonder, Sister Lucia tells us to turn and to look here. The dragon is going to try to devour her. She is going to be protected. She's going to be moved to a safe place. The serpent will go out and continue to wage war against all of those who are her children. Then we move into chapter 13. Again, there's much more commentary, but I'm just going to move sort of quickly, as quickly as I can. In chapter 13, we're going to meet a couple of other very interesting characters. The dragon, by the way, after he can't devour the woman goes and stands on the shore of the sea. And then, St. John says, I saw a beast coming out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horn ten diadems, and upon his heads names of blasphemy. So he has the appearance of the dragon, and he's emerging from the sea near the dragon, and he's got blasphemy all over him, which is what, again, Our Lady has been warning us against as a grave sin, which is calling down the wrath of God. In La Salette she did this, and the revelations to Marie de Saint-Pierre, the Carmelite nun that she gave the revelations of the Holy Face, and Our Lady of Good Success. Even in Fatima, blasphemy and sacrilege are the great sins by which man is directly offending God. And so here we see that these beasts have these and promote those. And it looks like the dragon with its heads and diadems. And this beast, which I saw, was like to a leopard, his feet were like a bear, his mouth like that of a lion... All of these things, the church fathers comment on what they could mean. I won't get into that because that also, I think, can take us far afield. So I'm trying to stay more sort of the big picture. The dragon gives him his own strength and his own great power. So what is this beast of the sea? The general consensus among the church fathers is that for the Israelites who lived in the land, the promised land, which butts up against the sea, whenever they really got major invasions, a lot of those major invasions would come from the sea. And so the enemies would come, the Gentiles would come, as well as when you sailed out too far into the sea, it was very uh, unknown. Storms could come up very quickly and destroy you. So even those days, they wanted to sail close to the coastline. So the sea was seen as that domain of Leviathan or of the devil. Enemies came from there. The Gentiles, those who don't believe and don't have faith, come from there. The oppressive and tyrannical states come from there. So that's what this beast of the sea most likely represents. It represents secular power that is not religious, that is set against the true faith. So when you look out and you read in newspapers about the groups getting together at Davos, the New World Order, all the other things that we're reading about going on right now, trying to create global economies and take down borders, just create this sort of one world system, that's really this beast of the sea at work. Okay, that's the type of the beast of the sea. It could be represented by others. I mean, various Roman emperors could have been the beast of the sea as well, represented by him. Napoleon could have been a beast of the sea. All of these times at the state, even various Byzantine emperors of Constantinople who tried to oppress the church. That's the beast of the sea. The fact that the church is always going to be besieged and attacked by the state if the state is not under Christ the king. So anytime you have the state not under Christ the king, you have these powerful state rulers they're going to oppress the true church. Obviously, he can increase in strength. And that's the beast of the sea. And then there's an interesting passage. I mean, I think it's definitely going to be fulfilled more in the future. But it says, And I saw one of the heads of the beast, as it were, slain to death. And his death's wound was healed. And all the earth was in admiration after the beast. So the devil likes to mimic and hate God. And it looks like there's going to be something that looks like a death and a resurrection that this beast undergoes. And then people will be more mesmerized by him because he's undergone this resurrection-like miracle. So I think that's going to be one of the things that the Antichrist uses at the end of time. But the Church Fathers also tell us it could mean other things. So, for example, they pointed out when Constantine came along and declared the Edict of Milan and finally put away idolatry and things started moving towards a Christian world, it looked like that beast had been slain. But then came Arianism and a few emperors later came Julian, who was famously known as Julian the Apostate. And Julian the Apostate tried to resurrect paganism and began persecuting the Catholics again and the Christians and putting many of them to death. His reign was short. He tried to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem also, which is a big no-no. You can't do that. If the temple in Jerusalem gets rebuilt, that is the time of the Antichrist. It was destroyed in 70 AD and our Lord has promised it's not coming back until we're at the end. So that's another thing Antichrist is always trying to do, get the temple rebuilt back in the city of Jerusalem. And Julian the Apostle tried to do that. He died trying. So that could be, you know, an image of this. But another one could be, and that's why I was so glad that Mr. Frowney mentioned Pope Pius X, because we have the great era of modernism. That's like a head of the beast. And what Pope Pius X tried to do is he tried to slay it and he tried to kill it with the oath against modernism, with Pashendi, with his various documents, and he did a lot to try to get rid of that from the church. And modernism basically scurried under a hole, but it didn't get completely defeated. And unfortunately, Pius XI and Pius XII did not do enough to continue to stamp out that heresy. And so it just waited, and then it reared its head once again at the time of the Second Vatican Council. And the modernists took over the council, and really have taken over the church since then. They have infiltrated and they have taken over. This is like a resurrection of the beast. And now many stand in awe of it and think, wow, we're in a wonderful springtime when everything is great in the church. And that is not so. So they deceive themselves, which you'll read about that. That's exactly what happens here. They deceive themselves after this lying wonder where the beast was supposed to be killed, but it came back. So that could tie us very well into Fatima because Our Lady was warning us not to allow the dogmas of the church or her worship to be changed. For more on that, I'd encourage you to listen to my talk on the third secret that I just gave a few days ago. But this is a very powerful type, and it can, of course, represent other things, like we've just said, with all prophecy. Like we said earlier, that's how prophecy works. So consider communism, which many think died. Let's say with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the Iron Curtain coming down, the former Soviet Union being splintered up into different countries, including, for example, the Ukraine, But in reality, communism and the errors of Russia are stronger than ever now than they were back, say, in the 1980s or 1990s. Many thought communism had suffered a kind of death on the global scale, but it has not. And many now stand in awe of this wokeism and the transgender ideology and all the other things that are going under the name of, let's say, social justice or socialism, which in reality is nothing but the errors of Russia which have indeed spread all over the world, as Our Lady of Fatima predicted. And lest anyone maintain this is just fanciful thinking, it was actually predicted by KGB agents who defected. They said, this is going to be Russia's plan. They're going to pretend to die, to roll over, play possum, to pretend that their social, economic, atheistic experiment failed so that they can infiltrate the rest of the world. I believe it was Alexander Solzhenitsyn who spoke about that, and that was probably still in the 1970s, so well before it all took place. He already sort of laid out and said, this is their plan. This is what's coming. And indeed, when the Soviet Union was dissolved, all the top brass, they didn't go to prison for their crimes against humanity. There were no Nuremberg trials for them many of them actually emigrated into Western countries to take over powerful business positions. charge of industry, in charge of media, getting into politics, technology, getting into oil, financing. Because the goal of communism has always been to take over the whole world and have a global, communistic, atheistic system. A godless, utterly immoral perverse and tyrannical New World Order. So we see here another connection to the message of Our Lady of Fatima. And then we could see another one. Because if, in fact, things get really bad, and then we do have the triumph of the Immaculate Heart with the consecration of Russia, there are prophecies that say that that will last only a short while. So the Catholics living at that time would have thought they had triumphed over this great evil. They're living in this era of peace. And then is going to come again, as we said, in a minor chastisement, and then is coming the major chastisement. Things will get very bad, I believe, very quickly again. Antichrist will rise. There will be the worst persecution ever. And so you can see also there this motif of a seeming death and a seeming rising up again by the forces of Antichrist. That too seems to link us into the message of Fatima and the end times. We continue to read there in chapter 13, verse 11, because there's a satanic trinity here. Again, the devil likes to ape God. So just like we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, three persons, we've now met the red dragon, and we've now met the beast of the sea, and now here comes the third member. And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. Okay, so this one doesn't come out of the sea, but the earth. Remember, the sea was where the Gentiles came from. that did not have the true faith. The earth and the land, the promised land, is where the people of God live and they are supposed to have the true faith. He comes out of the earth. And that image, which is an image that should immediately remind us of Adam, who came from the earth. That's actually what Adam's name means. And don't forget that Adam was the first high priest, representing all of humanity before God. And that also reminds us of the new Adam, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord and King, our eternal high priest. And then we read that this beast, coming from the land, had two horns. Not like a dragon, what does St. John say? And he had two horns like a lamb. So who's the lamb? Well we know the lamb is Christ. And Over and over in the book of the Apocalypse, he's calling Christ a lamb. So this beast is coming out that's got horns that look like a lamb, but he speaks as a dragon. So he has the voice of the dragon. And he executed all the power of the former beast in the beast's sight. And he caused the earth and them that dwell therein to adore the first beast, whose wound to death was healed. Notice well how this is an aping of Jesus Christ, who is the word of the Father and causes all men to worship the Father by his crucifixion, his death and resurrection. So we continue reading about this beast of the land in chapter 13, more descriptions about him. What does he do? And he did great signs so that he made also fire come down from heaven unto the earth in the sight of men. And he seduced them that dwell on the earth for the signs which were given him to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on earth that they should make an image of the beast which had the wound by the sword and lived. And then it was given to him to give life to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should speak and should cause that whosoever will not adore the image of the beast should be slain. Church fathers have always said that this is now the corruption within the church. This are the Judas's who betray Christ, of which the church is never rid of. So it's a religious power. That's why he's a prophetic. Later on in the book, Acts, chapter 16, you'll see this beast again. He's actually called the false prophet. So the beast of the land is the false prophet. He's a religious figure who will seduce the nations to succumb to the plan that the beast of the sea has. And so there's going to be a sort of merging and then a whole merging between church and state. It's not supposed to be the true Church of Christ that is emerging here. It's being deceived. And being led to, again, stand in awe with the one that was slain, but has come back. So we do have that element also going on. And as you read the message of Fatima, as well as many other messages that Our Lady has said, always she asks us, pray for the Pope, pray for the bishops, pray for the priests. Religious vocations are being lost. And Satan knows exactly how to drag the most souls down to hell. He goes after the religious. He goes after the priests. He knows what brings the greatest sorrow to the sacred heart and the immaculate heart. And that is to drag down the souls that are consecrated to those hearts. The priests and the religious. And so Satan is definitely waging a very intense war against those who have the positions of authority within the church. Because if he can drag them down, then he gains a lot of souls in a very short amount of time. And that's what's been given to him, a very short amount of time. So he has to work fast, and that's, that's what he's doing. But Again, this is all here within sacred scripture. It's all there within the book of the Apocalypse. That chapter 13 concludes, And he shall make all, both little and great, rich and poor, freemen and bondmen, to have a character in their right hand, or on their foreheads, And that no man might buy or sell, but he that hath the character, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. And then I think we're all familiar with this. Here is wisdom, he that understandeth, let him count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and the number of him is 666. So that's symbolism, we can all talk, and there's theories on what that 666 refers to. For sure, it's the number of the devil. I mean, that's clear. This designates the name of Antichrist, somehow the sign of the devil and the Antichrist. And just like we mark ourselves with the sign of the cross, and we're supposed to carry that cross, if you will, on our foreheads, right, to show that we belong to Christ and we're under his kingship, that we are consecrated to our lady and belong to her, so too those who go over becoming apostates or giving themselves to the devil and his beasts will have the sign of the beast. And it's going to get rough, according to this, because if they don't have that sign, they can't buy or sell anything. So it's hard to get things when you can't buy or sell things. Not that easy. Terrible persecution. Again, I think we see a lot of parallels of things that might be going on in our day where people are thinking, is this a mark of the beast? Again, I'm not here to tell you this or that is the mark of the beast. I don't think that's my place. You can speculate on that yourself. Talk amongst yourselves and with your friends what you think it might be. But but we're seeing things like this take place. We're seeing it unroll and develop here in front of us. I think I'll leave us there at the end of chapter 13 and go back to just look at chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 a little. Since those are also parts of it. Brief commentary, sort of stepping back. We can say when we read chapter 12 and 13, what is very clear is that there's this great titanic battle taking place. That the woman will be fighting the dragon. St. Michael is also fighting the dragon. The dragon is bringing together all of his forces, this anti-trinity, this satanic trinity of beast of land and beast of sea, using all those powers to seduce the nations. He'll lie to them. He'll coerce them. He'll get them to worship false idols, idol worship. If religious leaders try to get us to worship idols, it's very much out of the pages of the apocalypse you know so all that is what the devil is amassing so as to seduce the nations so as to have his victory because he's going after the woman and her offspring of course the woman is being protected and those that are with her are protected and so ultimately they'll be able to survive this remember the woman also represents the church so those who are being protected and will survive this are Catholics who remain faithful, faithful to Holy Mother Church, the Immaculate Bride of Christ, who always brings forth a complete and pure, immaculate doctrine, and the true worship of God. True faith, true worship, filled with supernatural grace, the virtues of faith, hope, and above all, charity. Those are the true disciples of Christ, of which St. John is speaking here at the end of the 12th chapter of the book of the Apocalypse. And so, of course... We want to make sure that we do everything we possibly can to remain within that protection of Holy Mother Church, the Immaculate and Spotless Bride of the Lamb, the Lamb of God. And we're not going to read about this today, but I think you all know that you see the great splendor of the Church in the 21st and 22nd chapters of this book, the very last chapters of the Sacred Scriptures. So look at uh, chapter 8 now, if you will. At this point, we'll, again, just give sort of quick snapshots. Much of this, again, I'm going to tell you is, you know, just sort of using what you know of the faith, using what you know of the message of Fatima, reading scripture, not a one-to-one correlation. We're using imagery. This is not a defeat interpretation. It is meant to make you really think and to go back and to meditate and to pray and ultimately to inspire you with great confidence and hope because God's laid it out for us. So that's the ultimate purpose here. So in chapter 8, we read, And when he had opened the seventh seal, this is an angel that's opening seals, there was silence in heaven as if for half an hour. So I read that, and when anytime these seals are being opened, these are like great events, great historical events, where history can't sort of progress until a seal is open, and then things begin to unfold again. So what exactly was this seventh seal that's being opened? I I don't know. I wonder, is it—is it Our Lady coming at Fatima and giving a message? Is it her giving us a third secret that she wants to be revealed? There's silence in heaven. If you know something about heaven, that's a little odd. Usually when we get the images of heaven, the angels are singing, the saints are singing. There's this constant liturgical adoration going on. It's like the saints in heaven are constantly and unceasingly worshiping God. So if there's silence... It almost seems like the worship of God has perhaps ceased. Now, of course, that can't happen. But is this image one evoking God not receiving the adoration he deserves of man not honoring and worshiping God as he ought, and therefore God's wrath will and does fall upon man? So what was this seventh seal that got this? Uh, We're not sure. Has Has God turned his face from man? And not allow his grace to flow into the world. He says, and then I saw seven angels standing in the presence of God. And there were given to them seven trumpets. The trumpets are liturgical instrument in the old days. So this is going to have liturgical overtones. And the angels are here who are present at the liturgy. So things are going to start getting moving. But they're always moving. Also in harmony with the liturgy. The mass is. It really is the source and the summit of all our life. It's the mystery of. Of Christ. It's his sacrifice. It was there from the foundation of the world. And it will be there to the end of the world. All grace flows from the Mass. St. Padre Pio famously said, I loved it. He said, this world could better survive without the sun than without the Mass. As Catholics, we usually don't believe this, but it's true. And what happens in the Mass affects what goes on in the world. If the Mass is very reverent, and in the Mass, people are truly worshiping God, then things are going to go better in the world. But if the Mass becomes a place of blasphemy or sacrilege or irreverences, lack of respect for God, lack of faith, all these things that may be happening turns into a community banquet celebration instead of the worship of God and His holy sacrifice of adoration and thanksgiving and reparation, atonement, and petition. Those four acts of our worship of God is. But I mean, if it doesn't become that, then, then it has an effect in the world. If you see a lot of evil going on in the world, you can bet your bottom dollar there's evil going on in the Mass. Because the Mass is ultimately the driving force of the entire universe. And that's from the beginning of time to the end of time. So the liturgy, very important here. And so I saw seven angels standing in the presence of God and they were giving to them these seven trumpets. Again, Fatima connects us. We see St. Michael At Fatima, when we have the vision of Fatima, we have an angel that's got the flaming sword. Mr. Frowney was speaking about him as well. At that same vision, we have a Calvary-like image because the Pope is martyred as well as many others are being martyred. But two angels are holding aspersoriums and they're helping the souls go up to heaven and they're sprinkling the blood of the martyrs on them. So all these angels that are present in the message of Fatima, again, we're seeing them here as our Lord uses them. Uh, The blood of the martyrs are souls making their way up to God. An angel took the censer, filled it with fire of the altar, and cast it on the earth. And then there were thunders and voices and lightnings and a great earthquake. When we hear about thunder and lightning and earthquake, that's the voice of God. God is now speaking. God is now acting. So he took the fire from the sacrifice of the altar, the angel did, and he throws it down to the earth, which can't be a pleasant thing. This is in response to the prayers of the saints going up like incense. Or perhaps the prayers of the martyrs going up to heaven that are being killed on account of the errors of Russia and the tyrannical anarchy that has spread throughout the earth. And the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound the trumpet. There's always a time of preparation. God is always preparing us. You know, we could say that we've been given a time of preparation with Fatima as well. She appeared in 1917. She said, you have time to do this. She appears in 1925 and says, now start the first Saturdays, 1929, now consecrate Russia. We were given a lot of time to prepare, and, and I don't think we've done the adequate preparation. So then the trumpets begin to blow, and the terrible things begin to happen. The first angel sounds his trumpet. There followed, hail and fire mingled with blood. And it was cast on the earth, and the third part of the earth was burnt up, and the third part of the trees were burnt up, and all the green grass was burnt up. What is this? Again, it reminds me of the vision of the angel who has flames being hurled towards the earth. It reminds me of the miracle of the sun because the sun hurled it to the earth and the people that were present thought that the world was going to be destroyed by fire at that very moment. They thought the world was at an end. It reminds me as well of Our Lady's message at Akita whom Cardinal Ratzinger said is essentially the same as Fatima. So, we have it on good authority that Akita and Fatima are very well connected. And in Akita, what did Our Lady say? Fire will fall down from heaven, that many will die, that the living will even envy the dead. Our Lady says that? Those exact words are going to be in the book of the Apocalypse here. It's like Our is quoting scripture here. So, fire falling down from heaven. I, I don't know if that's a nuclear war or not. I mean, that's not my place to say. We could see that it could be. It's certainly not unreasonable to think that, certainly not right now. With the posturing that Russia and NATO and the United States are all doing. I mean, we're getting very close to something like that. So it could be that. Could be supernatural fire. It could be other fires. We're not sure. And then it continues. And the second angel sounded the trumpet. And as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea. And the third part of the sea became blood. And the third part of those creatures died, which had life in the sea. And the third part of the ships was destroyed. So this warfare seems to cause a great pollution in the sea. This great mountain, there's been various different prophecies about a comet hitting the earth. Will a comet hit the earth? If a comet hits the earth, that certainly does look like a mountain. If it lands in the oceans, it could certainly cause great pollution and great death to life on this planet. Is that happening also? Is that connected to fire from heaven? Or fire from the skies falling down? It certainly could be. These are all things that could be happening if they do happen. Again, it's not meant for you to get Don't fret yourself. God's got it under control. He's told us these things are happening and we know how it ends. It ends with the triumph of Our Lady. Uh, But these things are there and we can draw these various connections. You can see how commerce and transportation and all those things that we rely on today could greatly be impacted by some of these kinds of events. The wars and the famines and the plagues and even things falling out of the sky, comets or whatever they're going to be, what they might be that would hit us. And a third angel sounded the trumpet. And a great star fell from heaven, burning as it were a torch. And it fell on a third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of water. And the name of that star is called Wormwood. So here we get a really good clue that St. John gives us. And there might be a slight shift from the first two. The fathers will tell us that Wormwood most likely signifies a perversion of justice. I don't know of a better description of our times right now than a perversion of justice. We see that in our statement. I it's like the FBI is not an agent of justice anymore. Politics, you know, voting. None of these things are just anymore. I mean, they're imprisoning and the FBI is raiding people who are just trying to pray and save a baby's life. Because we know that justice on a very basic level, its foundation is the natural law, the natural order that God has established in all things. And today, people are completely rejecting the natural law. They refuse to even acknowledge its objective reality. We see it especially in how the family is being destroyed in the entire transgender and transhumanism and trans whatever you want to call it, ideologies that are taking over our schools and our public spaces. Seriously, how can marriage be quote unquote redefined? It's crazy. There's very little justice in this world right now and in the church as well there's very little justice. You know, churches that are flourishing and Catholics are going to Mass and they've got big families and they're all very happy and they're trying to bring up people in the faith. And those are the Masses that are getting shut down. And priests that are trying to support life or trying to support the faith that's getting canceled and shut down. And other priests that are supporting things that are completely contrary to the faith, a violation of natural law, are getting promotions. I mean, where is the justice? Perversion of justice is a very apt description for our days. That's wormwood. This is Wormwood. This is this third star. And again, remember what we said a star was. A star is a high-ranking prelate, So a star is falling down from heaven. That's the star, the prelates falling into heresy, falling into apostasy, which is what the third secret of Fatima is about, predicts this great apostasy. So here we have it in the message of Apocalypse. The star is called Wormwood. It signifies that perversion of justice, the fruits of idolatry. When God's people turn from worshiping him and turn to idolatry, that's this thing of wormwood, divine chastisements that accompany these things. The third part of the waters then become wormwood. So when this star falls, all this other third of the stars, another huge portion of the clergy, becomes wormwood, becomes a perversion of justice, becomes idolatrous, brings on chastisements. So through a fall of prelates, we begin to see a perversion of idolatry that corrupts The very waters that sustain men. Our Lord talks about coming to drink from the living fountain of waters. It's his doctrine. It's his dogma that we can drink from and bring in life. He tells the apostles, I don't need bread. I don't need to eat. is to do the will of my Father. He's got to know God's will and do God's will. And that's what sustains him. That's the living water. That water is also a symbol for baptism and for grace, for the sacraments. You might ask, how is it that we get Christ's living water? And it's obviously through the sacraments that he has established in his church. But if the priesthood becomes corrupt and they're the ones that provide the sacraments then obviously there's corruption there also. What if the sacraments are changed? What if the prayers are changed so that some of their efficacy is reduced? So we have these fonts of grace like the sacraments and the faith which begins to be altered on account of this wormwood, this apostasy within the clergy. And the people that are drinking it they're going to obviously be infirm spiritually speaking, supernaturally could even be dying, evokes mortal sin, as well as the eternal death. That's hell. That's souls falling like snowflakes into hell. Again, back to the vision that Lucius saw at Fatima. All connected here. Then a fourth angel, in verse 12, sounds a trumpet, and a third part of the sun was smitten, and a third part of the moon, and a third part of the stars, and a third part of them was darkened. So here we have a lot of meetings. The clergy that is being darkened and is lacking the grace. It's the same kind of apocalyptic language that our Lord uses in the Gospels when he's talking about the end times and things that are coming to an end. To look at the stars and the signs in the heavens. The miracle of the sun. It foreshadows what could happen. A kind of devastation upon this earth. People know about three days of darkness and even those might be preceded by a shorter period of darkness to prepare people for the three days of darkness. That could be this third part of the sun being smitten and there being darkened. They did not shine for a third part of it and the night in like manner. So is this going to be a precursor of our days? verse 13, And I beheld and heard the voice of one eagle flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, by reason of the rest of the voices of the three angels, who are yet to sound the trumpet. And so with this eagle flying through, it seems like that's a a kind of change. It's almost like, okay, shift act one to act two type. We've had all these material chastisements and physical chastisements and terrible chastisements. Wormwood is acting as the bridge because now we see that, okay, but it's also about the doctrine becoming bitter. And when the eagle comes, it says, well, now there's also all these spiritual chastisements, which are the far worse ones. And anytime you hear the prelates that know about the third secret, that's actually what they tell us. They basically are always saying, yeah, I mean, there might be these material chastisements. John Paul II and Fulda says, well, you know, if there is a prophecy about something worse than the deluge and the flood. So they're always hinting that they're material chastisements, but they always turn around and say, but the worst is a spiritual chastisement. The worst is the loss of souls. The worst is like destruction of the life in the church. That's really the worst. And that's obviously how Sister Lucia felt as well. So we can say that the essence of Fatima, and the third secret of Fatima, deals ultimately with spiritual chastisement, spiritual things. And this eagle flying through the sky, giving us this woe, sort of signals that shift, that now we're we're looking at some other matters. And so we look at chapter 9, verse 1, chapter 9. A fifth angel sounded a trumpet, and I saw a star fall from heaven upon the earth. We're getting used to this motif, right? You all know what that means now. And I saw a star falling from heaven upon the earth, and there was given to him a key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and the smoke of the pit arose as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke of the pit. Again, what is going on? And what I see here, this is again me, just what I see. An angel is falling down again, so this is another fallen prelate. Key. We know the key is always a symbol of the authority. Right, we can remember Matthew 16, when the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, and Peter's given a key. So this fallen star gets a key, and with that key goes and he opens up the bottomless pit. And then all this smoke and evil starts coming up out of hell. Mr. Frowny fortunately did it for me. He already quoted some of the quotes that Paul the sixth himself gave us. Some crack in the temple of God by which a smoke is now coming into the church. Everyone feels like a smoke has entered into the church. It's the smoke of Satan. It's the smoke from the bottomless pit. To me, I hear Paul VI saying that back in the 70s, and I think he was making a reference right here to chapter 9 of the Apocalypse. It's the exact same imagery. And so the key is the authority that the prelates have. It could even be, perhaps I'm stretching it here, perhaps I'm not, but it could even be a kind of council, which is a key, which is the authority of the church, by which they open up a pit and let a lot of... Errors. Now, all this smoke that comes out, we continue. What's coming out? And from the smoke of the pit, there came locusts upon the earth, and power was given to them. The scorpions of the earth have power, and it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who have not the sign of God on their foreheads. These locusts, the church fathers tell us, are heresies, are errors, are sacrilege and blasphemy. Again, the things that Our Lady has been warning us about, errors and sacrilege, that the powers that the demons use to seduce men and to drag souls down. And clearly they've been let loose and it's all coming out. And these locusts, I won't even describe the locusts, they're pretty horrendous and people come up with crazy interpretations of what each description of how the locust looks uh, means. I I won't go into that. It's the powers of hell being let forth. It's all these demons. You know, again, the spiritual combat that Mr. Frowney as well was talking about that's so important that we have to be aware of. It is here, it has been opened, it has been let loose because of this lack of grace that is now around. Demons and heresies, those go hand in hand. Each demon has a specific task, so it could be that each particular error comes principally from a particular devil, and that its opposing or rectifying truth is what the devil was in fact supposed to promote as an angel, but he rejected that. So again, you see images coalescing, demons and heresies. And then we have the image of the key. Well, that reminds us of the power of the Pope to bind and loose, and the image that the gates of hell will never prevail against the Church. So, putting some of this together, a fallen star with a key opening the pit of hell could also be a fallen Pope, an anti-Pope, or a heretical Pope. Basically, a Pope who is in the line of Judas, we might say. And given the emphasis that Fatima places on the papacy and the Pope, and in the third secret, the mysterious bishop in white, whom the children saw in, as if in a mirror, and they had the impression that he was the Holy Father. Well, I certainly see another possible connection here. I asked myself, was Sister Lucia hoping we'd read these chapters with eyes to see and ears to hear, with faith and wisdom? So they're not hurting the physical things, like the tree or the earth, but only those who don't have the sign of God on their foreheads. So again, what's going to protect us? The sign of the cross. We also know the rosary offers great protection. The true faith, holding fast to the true dogmas, that is what protects us. Don't lose the dogmas. Very connected to the message of Fatima, where she says that the dogma of the faith will not be lost in Portugal, implying, but in other places it will be lost. It was given unto them that they should not kill them, these heretical scorpion things, but that they should torment them for five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he strikes a man. So poison is now infiltrating their body, right? The poison of the scorpion. Reminds me again of Pope Pius X talking about the poison that the modernists have sort of seeped into the lifeblood of the church and it's going to its very veins, its very heart, to the very root of a tree that is the life of the church. And in those days, men shall seek death and they shall not find it. And they shall desire to die, and death shall fly from them. So that's where I hear Our Lady of Akita saying that the living will even envy the dead. There's just more. I mean, then there's these armies that come out, horsemen that come out, great armies. And so I think, are these the armies that other prophecies say that various armies from the east, like Russian armies, will wipe across Europe, and that European cities will be laid in revolution, and that blood will be flowing in their streets? Is this armies of Mohammedans that are coming across? All of these things are also prophesied in other Catholic prophecies, compiled, for example, in that book by Yves DuPont. And so one wonders if there's an intersection between these passages of the Apocalypse and those Catholic prophecies, where in some of those it says that they're going to put the crescent above the dome of St. Peter's. Is that going to happen as these armies march across from the east? Also that being in the prophecies that they come from the East. So I don't know, but there's certainly a lot of imagery here in chapter 9 about battle and about war. We always have to keep in mind that it could be physical war or it could be spiritual war. Or, what I think is most likely, is that it's both. Remember, that's the power in scriptural prophecy, that it's operating at multiple levels. And then the end of the chapter, it finishes by saying... You know the ones that aren't hurt, and the rest of the men who are not slain by these plagues did not do penance from the works of their hands. And now I'm like, that's us. All these plagues have been hitting us. World War II came and Our Lady told us, war is the punishment for sin. We've been getting hit with plague after plague and, and we're not listening and the plagues have gotten worse and we're not listening. Like, that's us. And the rest of the men who are not slain by these plagues did not do penance from the works of their hands that they should not adore devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither did they penance from their murders, nor from their sorceries, nor from their fornication, nor from their thefts. Because they're not ceasing to violate these first three commandments of God, they clearly will not cease to violate the other commandments of God either. And so murder, theft, fornication, unnatural vice, all those things continue to grow. Just think about those four terms. The murders. Think of abortion that requires public penance. And as a whole, we are not doing that. Even our bishops are not leading us in public reparation for abortion, which is necessary. they sorceries. Think of how the occult has grown so dramatically in these past few decades. And yet, There is no public outcry. Most people seem to be just fine with satanic gatherings in our civic centers. Diabolical activity in our world is clearly on the rise. You see it just in the way people dress, what they wear, how they tattoo and pierce up their bodies. Those are the kinds of things that are practiced in pagan occult cultures. And few people are even batting an eye about it now. They're fornications. That's all over our society. It is so commonplace. In fact, if you're not fornicating, you seem to be the oddball today. And of course, the entire unnatural vice movement is fornication. Yet where is our penance? Instead, leaders in our own communities, and our own churches, are talking about blessing it. And then he mentions thefts. Anyone who just looks at the way our basic economic system is working with central banking systems, uh, inflation. Taxation on every transaction, forced insurance programs, Ponzi schemes, I could go on, but there is so much theft all around us. And it's institutionalized. No remorse. No conversion. Instead, it's legalized. And I trust you know that all of these are very much connected to Fatima. As we said, violations of the first three commandments, of which Fatima also speaks, opens the path to these, and these four are hallmarks of the errors of Russia. Murder, communist Russia, first nation to legalize abortion, and also think of the millions and millions that have been murdered by communist systems, like Stalin and his death purges Mao Tse Tung, the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, and many others. More people have been killed in the name of the communist ideology than any other. Then you have the occult. Atheism underpins communism, one of the most foundational errors of Russia. And anytime you have atheism, a growth in the occult necessarily follows. Fornication. The errors of Russia include all the attacks on the family that we are so familiar of today. They have promoted effeminate men, the radicalizing of women, the state care of children, rampant prostitution and divorce. It is their intentional target to destroy the moral fabric of a culture. And of course, theft. The entire economic system of communism, of socialism, is basically state-sanctioned theft. Yet none of this should surprise us nor dismay us. It is prophesied right here. So take hope. Instead, be filled with confidence. God has got it in control. That's going to be a running theme over and over again throughout this talk and the book of the Apocalypse, and really the Catholic faith. God's got it under control. We have to be faithful. Chapter 10. And I saw another mighty angel. Kind of know what this might be, maybe another great prelate. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. It's a good thing, because clouds, you think of Mount Sinai, that pillar of fire by night and dust cloud by day in Exodus, the cloud that fills Solomon's temple, clouds at the ascension, clouds at the baptism and transfiguration, the glory cloud of our Lord. So he's clothed with a cloud and a rainbow is on his head, the promise of God, and his face is like the sun and his feet are as pillars of fire. That too is the Shekinah of the Old Testament. Christ goes as a column of fire before his people leading them towards the promised land through the wilderness. So this is a good angel. He has in his hand a little book open and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. What might that mean? I don't know for certain conflicting opinions, but one of them might be. Again, we've seen already the sea and the land and how they represent the state and the Gentiles And the people of God and the church. And so if this angel comes and straddles them both with his feet, it's like he's uniting them. He's bringing them back together. He's bringing the powers of the state and the church back together and this angel is bridging them. Or the union of Jew and Gentile, which we also know to be a sign of the end times from the teachings of St. Paul and the Fathers. It could also even be the bridging of all the different fractures within the church. All the different parts that have splintered off from the one true mystical body of Christ. So this angel comes and he's straddling sea and earth and he cries out with a loud voice. That's when a lion roareth, the lion of Judah. So he's using the voice of God, the voice of Christ to cry out. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. So now God responds. Instead of God being silent, God is now responding. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders have spoken and write them not. God is always using secret. Some people even wonder, well, why did Our Lady give secrets at Fatima? Why didn't she just tell it all out? That's just not God's way. There's many reasons why He doesn't, but it's right here in Scripture. He's saying He gives secrets. And for some time, they're not supposed to be released, but at other times, they are supposed to be released. And the timing is critical. That's why we have to follow God's timing. So we even see this sort of this connection with a secret and how it has to be silenced but then released later. And the angel whom I saw standing upon the sea of the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and he swore by him that liveth forever and ever who created all the heavens and all the things that are in and the earth and all the things that are in it and the sea and all the things that are in. This is very clearly a vow, a promise to God. So this great prelate comes, he's trying to unite church and state, he's roaring with the voice of Christ, he's trying to bring back the order of God, and he's making a vow to God, and God is responding. I see that, and I say, whoa, that's the consecration of Russia. That's the vow. Russia being consecrated correctly. And things can then turn around. So he makes this vow, and now time shall be no longer. Sounds to me like an age of peace that comes because of this vow. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, which cried with the roar of the lion, remember, Sister Lucy even said that the voices of those who should speak will fall silent and that our shepherds are not going to lead us as they ought. So now we do have a shepherd who is leading us as he ought. This is like, if you're familiar with Our Lady of Good Success, she gave us prophecies in the 20th century. the middle of the 20th century, things were going to get really bad. Eventually, though, when things all seemed lost, a great prelate would rise up. God would rise up a great prelate. And he would restore the religious life of the priests, for example. And he would speak finally. So that's what all this sounds to me, like this great prelate rising up. Even in St. John Bosco's dream, there's a Pope who rises up sort of miraculously and is the one that puts the bark of Peter together. Next to the two pillars of the Holy Eucharist, we could say the Sacred Heart, and Our Lady, we could say the Immaculate Heart. And this, of course, is what restores order and calm to the church while her enemies are miraculously and suddenly, quite unexpectedly, utterly defeated. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, he shall begin to sound the trumpet, and the mystery of God shall be finished, as he has declared by his servants, the prophets. So we're getting to very close to the end times, This end, this period of peace that Our Lady has. Chapter 11, we see how he is then given to measure the temple, And then there was given to me a reed, like unto a rod. And I was told to arise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that adore therein. So he's basically measuring things out. Why is he measuring? This measuring is to protect. This measuring is to mark out the temple, the altar. That's the mass. These are the people that are the true adorers of God. And they're getting marked out. But then the court, which is on the outside of the temple, cast it out. Measure it not. It is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city that they shall tread underfoot. For two and forty months, three and a half years, which is the time of the persecution. So it seems that a part of the church, a part of the temple is marked off. That which is closest to the true mass, the altar and the people that are there. But the others that are in the outer courts, they don't get marked off. And the holy city, which usually represents the church, is not getting marked off. It's given over to the Gentiles and they're going to come in and they're going to wipe out. So a lot of those that you would think are in the church are not going to be measured in the church and they're not going to be protected. And the Gentiles are wiping them out. It's right there in sacred scripture. It's clear to see, because there's a desecration of what's going on. And so there's a persecution, and it's going to last two and forty months. Nevertheless, the inner temple, the true church, the essential church, remind them that there is the essential church that have the true faith and the true mass. They're there. They shall not perish even during this world persecution. Again, read the Apocalypse. The church always remains the immaculate and spotless bride of Christ. That's De Fidei. So it doesn't matter if there's leaders that come and wormwood stars and other stars opening up bottomless pits and third of the stars falling down from heaven. God is so powerful that still his bride is the immaculate, spotless bride of Christ. That's his church. We just can't see her now because it's in the passion. We are in the passion right now. The church has to follow Christ. And so Christ had a passion. And when people looked at him in his passion and saw, you know, vegetables being thrown at him that were raw, and eggs being thrown, and people spitting on him, and they're kicking him, and he's bleeding, and he's whipped, and as the scriptures say, he didn't even look like a man, he was so disfigured. But he was still God, always God, in a moment of great love for us. So too now, we the church are enduring our passion. And so, keep the faith, don't lose the faith, don't think, oh, the church is so disfigured right now, I'm jumping ship also. No! She's in her passion. So, endure the passion with Christ. And to strengthen, you read the book of the Apocalypse and connect it to the message of Fatima because it is there. Then there are these two great witnesses that come up. I love the two witnesses. I can't get them out because I'm out of time. But just so you know, most likely the two witnesses sort of at the end times are Elias and Enoch, the two men that never died. Everyone has to experience death. They did not die. They were taken off. We know not where. I like to think they were taken to the Garden of Eden. And they're hanging out in the Garden of Eden, which is not heaven. Garden of Eden is different. And maybe God just has them there until this time, because then they come back. And they're going to preach. And they're going to fight the bad guy, Antichrist, with miracles. And Antichrist will have his beast kill them. And they'll die there in Jerusalem. And then our Lord will resurrect them. So that's their death. Their death is still waiting, you know, a thousand years after they were born. But those two witnesses could also mean other prefigurements. Remember the type. So these two witnesses come. He gives them to his two witnesses. They prophesy. For a 1,260 days, they're clothed in sackcloth, so they're doing penance, penance, penance. They're like two olive trees and two candlesticks to stand before the Lord of the earth. If any man tries to hurt them, fire comes out of their mouth, shall devour their enemies. If any man will hurt them, in this manner they'll be slain. I like to think that maybe with Fatima connections, this is the great Catholic monarch and the great Holy Pope. Two great witnesses that come and begin to lead us and get us out of this. And do have great strength that God gives them to defeat enemies they'll also be killed. The seventh angel sounds a trumpet, and there were great voices in heaven saying, there's 1115, the kingdom of this world is become our Lord's and his Christ's, and he shall reign forever and ever. And I say, wow, that sounds like the reign of Mary. Because we're still just in chapter 11. We haven't even gotten to chapter 17 and 18, dealing with the Antichrist, and the Antichrist gets killed. So we're not at the end. But it looks like there's this peaceful reign. So he continues Right when we hear this, great voices in heaven saying, The world has become our Lord's and his Christ. He shall reign forever. And the four and twenty ancients who sit on their seats in the sight of God fell on their faces and adored God saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, who art and who was and who art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and thou hast reigned. That's the good, true, Catholic worship on earth and in heaven and they mirror each other. But it's not over because the nations were angry and thy wrath is come and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that thou shouldst render reward to thy servants, the prophets and the saints and to them that fear thy name, little and great and you should destroy them who have corrupted the earth. I think sometimes that might be like three days of darkness. You know, his saints and his prophets who have remained and have persevered. He's saving them but the others are getting judged and are getting destroyed. Continuing with chapter 11. And the temple of God was opened up in heaven. And the ark of his testament was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings and voices and earthquake and the great hail. Because we know that's the voice of God again declaring things, declaring the truth. The truth, for example, of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. What do we see at the end here? We see the ark in heaven again. So that brings us sort of full circle to where we began. That's why I think it's the reign of Mary. Because as he's talking about the reign of Christ and all these things, and the enemies are being defeated, and then you see what in heaven? The ark. And chapter 12 is right next, which says, And I saw the sign of the woman clothed with the sun. So it seems like we see a foretelling here of Mary's great triumph. But again, it's not the end. The end is, well, keep reading the book of the Apocalypse. There's more. So that's just a very brief introduction to chapters 8 through 13, let's say from the lens of Fatima. Now we can very much see the message of Fatima in these scripture passages. And again, the final lesson is just read this to your spiritual prophet. Always read it within the context of your Catholic faith so that it increases your piety, especially your hope and your faith, because that will strengthen you. Times will get difficult. They are difficult now. I believe they're going to get more difficult until we obey Our Lady Fatima. So that's what we need to be doing. But this brings us great consolation. If you ask yourself, what do I do to obey Our Lady Fatima? I always remind people I use a mnemonic Roman Catholic SOS, we are Roman Catholics and we have to send up an SOS to heaven. So it should be very easy to remember. Plus SOS is like boat imagery and we're on the bark of Peter that might be sinking. And so we want to get it tied to the columns of the Immaculate Heart and of the Holy Eucharist. So you got to be Roman Catholic. So people need to be baptized, need to be Roman Catholic and need to be staying in the state of grace. Otherwise you can't merit anything. The rest is meriting. But in, in doing reparation. So that's baseline Catholicism. Our lady is always saying, Cease offending God. Right? So make sure you're baptized, you stay in a state of grace, you cease offending God, no mortal sin. And then it's very simple. Roman Catholic SOS, five things. R, Rosary. That's your Roman. Say the rosary every day. Say well with devotion. The C is for consecration. So consecrate yourself to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and pray for the consecration of Russia. That's your Roman Catholic. And we have SOS, so that S stands for the brown scapular, which I began with at the prayer, and Our Lady wants everyone to wear. That's like your shield, just like the rosary is our sword. So wear the brown scapular. Make sure you're invested in the brown scapular by a priest to get all the graces graces from the brown scapular. The O is to offer, offer prayer and penance, your daily duty especially, but anything that happens to you, offer it up to God. That's why I gave you a state of grace. You can gain the merit from that to offer it up. And then the S is a Saturday. Do the First Saturday Devotion. I know this parish has a good, strong First Saturday Devotion movement, so that's good. But do the First Saturday every, every month. And that's how we'll be living the message of Fatima. And that's, that's what we can do. And that's a lot. That's more than we probably realize. So live out that Roman Catholic SOS, the five things. You'll be living the message of Fatima and helping bring about this great triumph of Christ and the Immaculate Reign of Mary, which is foretold, and we know for certain, It is coming. Thank you very much. This presentation has been brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. For more resources regarding the Catholic faith and the message of Fatima, and to support this vital apostolate with a donation, please visit our website Fatima.org or call us at 1-800-263-8160 All need to hear the message Our Lady brought the world at Fatima and we must all faithfully observe it. So for the glory of God, the honor of Our Lady and salvation of many souls, please share the Fatima message with everyone you know and may Our Lady reward you. Our Lady of the Rosary, pray for us.